All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all back. Faces that have been gone on holiday. It's good to see the church a bit fuller again. We're going to start. I actually want to start by saying I didn't take notes in Michael's sermon and write it down on a page, and now I'm going to read it to you again. (laughs) The topic that he spoke of and the topic that I'm speaking of, I almost want to say is identical. Um, It's about Christians and sin. So what relationship exists between a Christian and sin, if any? Um, So we're going to look at that. Oh, and sorry about my voice. It may disappear every now and then. So I don't consider it a a coincidence. I do fully trust God and know that if he wanted, Michael and I didn't speak, I, actually for the whole holiday to my shame, I guess. Sorry, Michael. But um, we, we, we didn't arrange it this way. So there's obviously something that God wants us all to take into this new year. With that being said, this is also not a New Year's resolution message. Um, it is a message that I think you can definitely apply to yourself and ask yourself, is this something that I can apply in this year? Is this something that I need to change? But the reason I don't want to make it a New Year's resolution message is because I think every message that you hear on a Sunday, or regardless of when you listen to a message, should change you. And it shouldn't be that now, okay, because it's the first Sunday of the year, I'm going to listen and I'm going to change my life. I think it should be let God's Word shape you, regardless of what day it is or where it may be. So, we have a lot to cover. Um, So let's just get into it. The first thing I want to say is that there are a few misconceptions about sin and a Christian's relationship therewith. Some people say that if you're truly saved, you don't commit sin. There's actually a verse that says something similar to that in 1 John 3 verse 9. It says, those who are born of God doth not commit sin. But there's also a verse in 1 John 1 verse 8 that specifically says that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. And so some people say, well, then the Bible must contradict itself. Or some people choose one side and neglect the other side. They don't reconcile those two. Others may say, now that I'm saved, I can sin as much as I want to. Or, now that I have assurance of heaven, is the worst thing that can happen to me as a loss of rewards. On that, I want to say already that I think if that is your mindset, you have reason to question whether something has truly changed in your life. In 2 Corinthians 5 or 17, it says that those who are in Christ, are an, are an, we are a new creation, we are a new creature. And so something needs to change. Now these questions that I just read to you, I believe come from a misunderstanding of what true salvation is. Christianity has been cheapened, it has been put on sale for the masses, and through that created many false Christians. So this message, this message that is preached by them offers salvation without any need for sorrow or repentance. No heartfelt sorrow for the sin they have accumulated against their holy God and Creator. Simply a positive reaction to the message of the gospel in an emotional setting is supposedly enough, and then you follow that up with some recited prayer. I'm not saying that people need to fix themselves 
and turn from all their sin before they can reach Christ. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. And that is required. So a change in attitude towards your sin is required. Neither am I saying that Christ did not come to save the masses and to make a sacrifice for the sins of the world. But Christ also said that narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are that find it. So there is definitely a, a disproportion in, in Christianity these days. False conversions through false teachings have confused and marred the Bible's teaching on the relationship between Christians and sin. So I hope that today's message will shine some light and hopefully give you some guidance and help you to go into this year and say, what is wrong with my relationship towards sin? So with that in mind, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we have this morning. Thank you for the message that was already brought, Lord. And I, I know that it is not a coincidence. And I, I trust you, Father, and help us to, to see what you want to tell us, Lord. Um, those who maybe missed something this morning may it be brought to their minds again. And, and Father, that was also so, it's so important, Lord, that if we identify something in our life that needs to change, that, that we would change it, Lord. That you, by your grace and by your help, Father, that we would um, become more the image of Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would please help us. Please guide me through your Spirit, Lord. And please be with these people, that your Spirit would also be close to them and that this would be a profitable message, a profitable time and a change in people's lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you may have noticed, if you've listened to me teach a few times, I like quotes. So here are two. Modern Christianity doesn't want to know the Prince of Peace. They just want to sin in peace. And this is a good one by A.W. Tozer. He said, a, new gener- a whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. So, before we start into a few what I consider key questions, I want to give a few definitions. The first thing, well, the message is Christians and sin. So, what is a Christian and what is sin? The first thing we do is in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. You can turn there, Acts 11, 26. Okay, so what is a Christian? Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. I'm sure you know at the end of this verse, it says, And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, I never knew this, but this was most likely used as a derogatory term or a way to speak to people from the pagan culture to speak down to these people and to say, oh, you are of those people who are of Christ. 
you are of those people supposedly belonging to Christ, almost speaking down to them. And I guess a modern way of saying that would be, oh, you're one of those Jesus freaks. You're one of those people who devote your life to Him. And it's not something they ascribe to themselves. It's something that the world gave them because they associated, they claim to be of Christ. So a Christian is anyone who strives to conduct themselves in a way that lines up with what Jesus expects. And that includes, obviously, firstly and primarily a response to the gospel. So conducting yourself in a way that lines up with what what Christ expects. A Christian is not someone who has ascribed to a particular set of religious beliefs or practices, joined a church, prayed a prayer, or participated in certain sacraments or rituals. It is someone who has responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repented of sin, put their whole faith in the finished work of Christ alone, made Christ Lord of their lives, and are sealed by the Spirit. Now, this is, these aren't separate events. These things co-occur. The, the, the Spirit convicts you of sin. You see your sin in light of God's holiness. You repent of your sin. You accept Christ's payment for that sin. And then the Spirit comes and seals you. And he, Christ is then Lord of your life. So this is salvation. Now the question you need to ask yourself is, am I saved? Are you saved? This is the most important question you can ask yourself because it goes beyond this life. It goes beyond the here and now. It is something that is a, that's the only question you need to answer that will essentially affect your entire eternal destination. The second thing we need to define is what is sin? So you can turn to 1 John. What is sin? I think this is the, the simplest way to define it. I think the deeper you go into it, you'll be able to um, assign more things to sin in a way as what Michael also did this morning. Um, there are, I guess, more ways to sin, but it all comes down to this, and this is in 1 John chapter 3 and um, verse 4. It says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So sin is any thought, word, or action contrary to God's law or character. Anything contrary to what God wants you to do. That is sin. And I think that's why the Bible, it's so obvious to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because I don't think any one of us in our right minds can say that I have never thought, done, or acted in any way that is contra- no, not contrary to God's character or His law. And so we are all guilty. We have all sinned. Now the first question that I want to address today is, can a Christian sin? Not should, not can a Christian live in sin, just can a Christian sin? And my answer is yes and no, because we need to define two different things. The one is your standing, and the other one is your state. So your standing is, what, what is your identity? Do you have an identity in Christ? Are you in Christ? That is your standing. That is where you're fixed. That is what cannot be um, 
or that is, that is a, a eternal standing. Then the other one is your state. And your state can be sinful, if I could put it like that. That is your relationship with Christ. So to better explain these two, when you're saved, you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Okay? All your sin is forgiven. And so you have, towards God, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, that you are made the righteousness of God in Christ. You are made that righteousness. To be righteous means there's no sin. There's nothing unrighteous. And that is what happens, but it's not because of, your, because of you. It's because of Christ. The second thing about your standing is that you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. So it's an incorruptible seed. You can turn to, um, I think you're on, yeah, you're first, first John chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, For whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. Being born again not of incorruptible, but of, oh, but not of corruptible, but of incorruptible seed. And that is that word of God. That is the eternal gospel. That is the salvation of Jesus Christ. So in terms of your standing, you are eternally secure. And in Romans 4 verse 8, we read about blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He won't charge it to your account because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And what an absolute amazing gift that is. That we as sinners can be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That we can stand before a holy God and He can say forgiven. He can say justified. And that is not because of us. That is God's grace alone. And our sin is not imputed. But our state. So can a Christian sin in your state? Yes, you can. Your fellowship can be harmed. Your sanctification, in other words, your becoming more like Christ can be hindered. So, the rest of this message will essentially continue on the state of a Christian. Your fellowship, your sanctification, your walk, your relationship with God. What is that relationship? What should it look like in a Christian's life? So, a Christian can sin, but his sin is not imputed. If he's truly saved, it's not imputed to his soul, and his soul is eternally secure. So, the second question is, should a Christian Should a Christian sin? And I think this answer is pretty straightforward. No. A Christian shouldn't sin. We are called to purity. We are called to be in fellowship. We are called to good works. As I mentioned earlier in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, it says that therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are are become new. It's almost like you've gone through a change of of species. You were, let's say, you were a fish, okay? And now you're a land-dwelling animal, if I could put it that way. As a land-dwelling animal, you can go into the water, right? You can even probably, if you wanted to make a living in the water, you could have, you could, I don't know, catch fish. That would be weird, but anyways. You could you could catch fish and you can live there, but it's not going to be the environment in which you're made to dwell in, right? And so when you are made a new creature, 
you are supposed to live in a new habitat, have new habits, and that is the change that happens. Whereas some people choose to live still in the water where they have been saved from. And so you are a new creature in Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And then it says in verse 10 that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we are created unto good works. So in your state, you are supposed to do good works. You are supposed to live like a new creation. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, it says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then the very next verse says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And so there is a call to war in this world, to war against sin. You don't entangle yourself. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then it says, That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Do you see the desire that a Christian should have? It's not a question of can. It's a question of desire. It's a question of attitude. It's a question of, are you living for Him? Now you can open to Romans. Romans chapter 6. We're going to spend a bit of time here because this chapter speaks very much on the subject of what is a Christian's relationship towards their sin. Towards sin. So in Romans chapter 6, we are born again, we are made new, we are called to walk with God, but we can't as long as we live in sin. So in Romans chapter 6, um, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, that's the same question that I read to you in the beginning of Christians who say, okay, now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, right? I can sin as much as I want. That's this question. Can we now continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It says live in sin. A Christian should not be living in sin. A Christian should be living for the Lord. We read that in, in verse 4. Romans 6 verse 4. It says, Therefore, if we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So something has to change. Something should want to change. And the way I phrase the question is, now that I am a Christian, can I do whatever I want? I think if your wants are not starting to line up more with Scripture, the more you saturate yourself with Scripture, there's a valid question to be asked is, what are your desires? Why are your desires for sin and not to serve the God who saved you? We should walk in newness of life. Because we are a new creature, we have a new nature, and we have new desires. But I want you to notice something in verse 4. It says, 
Notice the difference between your standing and your state. In verse 4 it says, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That is your standing. When you're saved, you are buried with Christ in baptism unto death. Then it goes on to say, That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, then it says, Even so we should walk in newness of life. And then it changes to your state. You should walk in newness of life. Have a look in verse 6. It says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth what? We should not serve sin. Not we cannot. We should not serve sin. If we read through verse, um, verse 11, you see, likewise reckon also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then it says, let not sin therefore reign. So in verse 11 it says, reckon yourselves to be dead. In verse 12 it says, let not sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it and the lust thereof. Then verse 13 says, neither yield ye your members as instrument to unrighteousness, um, of unrighteousness unto sin. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. you are under the, um, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And if you read the, if you see the language here, it is, you should not. You should reckon yourself to be dead. Sin will not have dominion over you. Let not. Yield not. You see, there is a, a definite choice that you have to make regarding your position towards sin. This is speaking to a saved person. A saved person needs to change in terms of their desires towards sin, not to desire for that. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? There that same question is asked again. God forbid. Verse 16. Know ye not... To whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are. To whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So someone who is under grace, in verse 15, we read in verse 15 about someone who is under grace, will not yield or give himself over to sin. Become essentially a servant to sin. To such a man... Christ is not his Lord. He has yielded himself to sin. So, a Christian should not sin, but will a Christian sin? Have a look at Romans chapter 7. A Christian should not sin, but will a Christian sin? The answer is yes. Romans chapter 7 verse 21 says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So he's saying in verse 21, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So even when I'm trying to serve God, I sometimes find myself doing it for ulterior motives. 
I can find a reason to sin even when I'm doing good. And that is the fallen state of man. That is our sinful nature. So, will you sin? Yes, you will. Should you sin? No, you shouldn't. Verse 21, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Where is, where is Paul's delight? Where is Paul's desire? It is to do what is after the inward man, where Christ now dwells, where His Spirit dwells. That is what he wants to do. His desire is there. But he sees that there is a war because there is a law in his members warring against the law of his mind. So, will a Christian sin? Yes. Should a Christian sin? No. Paul was yielded. Um, Paul was... I must have mistyped this. Oh, was Paul... That's a question. Was Paul yielded to sin? Was Paul living in sin? Was Paul serving sin? I don't think you can go as far to say that. Look at what he says in um, Romans 7 verse 15. He says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. He says what I hate. You see, he's not, his desire is not for that. He is not in a, in a position where he wants to sin. He is not yielding himself to sin. That is why he's at war. If he was yielding himself to sin, there would be no war. But he is fighting because he is saved. Verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He calls this sin that constantly opposes his desire now as a new creation, he calls it a wretched man that I am, the sin that is in him. And so that is what a Christian's response towards sin should be. And so the third thing I want to speak about is, can a Christian sin? Yes, in your state, but no, in your standing. Should a Christian sin? No. Will a Christian... Ah, that's another one. I didn't do that, but I guess you can do it. Will a Christian sin? Yes. You don't have to doubt your salvation if you sin. It depends on, do you hate this sin, as Paul said? Does he call himself a wretched man for that? Yes, he does. Now, can, should, will. The next thing is, how should a Christian respond? What is a Christian's response to sin? The first thing that we've already discussed, actually, is the hatred. A hatred for sin. We saw that in Romans 7, verse 15. The reason I say you must hate it is, Someone once explained it to me like this. Is that it is your sin that drove in the nails. It is your sin that spat in his face. It is your sin that mocked him and cried crucify him. It is your sin that whipped and tore the flesh from his back. How can you willingly continue to sin after being shown His grace. If it is your sin, if it is my sin that crucified Him, beat Him, spat in His face, pushed that crown of thorns onto His head, it's because of sin that that happened. And if that is what sin did, how can you willingly continue in sin after being shown that grace? How can you ask the question of saying, okay, I'm saved now, so now I can continue living my God-forsaken life? You can't ask that question. The two are 
not reconcilable. You're essentially saying, I will spit in his face one more time. As you live in your sin, as Michael said, another drop of blood, another drop of blood. You are driving in that nail each time you sin. And that's why Paul says, a wretched man that I am. Because that is what your sin did to Jesus on the cross. And so the first thing as a Christian should respond to sin is to hate it. You need to hate your sin. In um, Hebrews 12, I can't remember the verse, I think it's verse 4, it says, you've not strived unto blood, striving against sin. There's a, there's a, a passion, there's an eagerness to live a life that is free from sin. The second thing I want to say that a Christian's response to sin should be is repentance. You can open to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, I'll read it to you. It says, Now rejoice. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive um, damage by us in nothing. And then he says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. So godly sorrow worketh repentance. And in Romans 2 verse, verse 4, we read, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and longsuffering not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So we see that in Second Corinthians 7, it is that a godly sorrow works repentance. And we see here that the goodness of God leads to repentance. If you have sinned and you've wronged someone so severely, and you've hurt them by doing something incredible, to look at that person and to not impute almost the sin to that person, if I could put it like that. What do you think the proper reaction would be by that person you wronged? It, there's a, or that person treats you that way. There's, a, there's that goodness. That goodness of that person treating you not the way you deserve. And that goodness leads you to repentance. And that's what it's saying here. Don't you see how God's long-suffering is forbearing? His goodness leads you to repentance. And so when you sin, as you will as a Christian, when you sin, you hate it. But you repent of it because you see that the grace that has been shown to you is too great to neglect. You can't but not repent if you see the goodness of God. And I think part of this is maybe we don't look enough into God's grace. We don't look at God's grace. We don't look at the cross enough to see what God has done for us. And therefore that goodness does not often lead us to repentance. Repentance is one of the sincerest forms of worship. You are essentially saying, God, you are right, and I have sinned. You are holy, and I am not. I will humble myself, and you will be exalted. That is what repentance is. And when you do that, that is worship. And that is something that a Christian should do. The third thing a Christian's response to sin is a desire to restore fellowship. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. A desire to restore fellowship. Very familiar passage. 
In 1 John chapter 1, John writes um, in verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So, so John's desire for these Christians is that they would have fellowship as they have with the Lord, and that their joy would be full. And then in verse 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, that is, live in sin, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Michael went a little bit into the confession of sin. But I think the important thing to know here is God looks not at man the way we look at man. And He sees the inward part of a man. And if you are truly confessing your sin, in other words, you don't want to live in that sin anymore because you desire to have the fellowship, um, to have fellowship with God, as John writes here, you will confess your sin and you will deny it. And you will follow the Lord. So that, that, like I said, the third thing for a Christian's response to sin is a desire for fellowship. Now, fellowship comes from a unity between your spirit and God's spirit. So what God is saying, what He has revealed in His Word through His spirit, lines up with your desires. And the closer those two come to unity, the greater the fellowship is. And so those two run together. And so how do you then destroy or what disturbs this fellowship is when you grieve or when you quench the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians um, 4 verse 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed um, unto, uh, unto the day of redemption. So whereby you are sealed unto the... Grieve not the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, it says, Quench not the Spirit. How do you grieve the Spirit? Well, if you read in Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see the context there is one of let not corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth and do that which is good and for edifying. Minister grace. And then it says in the verse after that, it says let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. So it's sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. And in what quenches the Spirit, what quenches a fire is when you chuck something on it that what quenches it. So that is to pour sin essentially on that fire. But another thing that quenches that fire is removing what it's keeping. It's keeping it burning to remove oxygen or to remove whatever is fueling that fire. And so the way you quench the spirit is by allowing sin in your life and living in that sin. And how you also quench it is by removing what is fueling it. And what is fueling a Christian's life is the truth of God. It is the truth about Jesus. It's the Word of God. It is that quickening Word of God. And that is what fuels your fire. So you remove the Bible, you do- stop spending time in the Word of God, and you allow sin in your life. That combination grieves and quenches the Spirit, and your, des- your fellowship with God goes away. I'm not sure whose quote this is. I think it's Pastor Mike's, or somewhere he heard it. But the Bible will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. 
And there is no fellowship if sin is keeping you from the Bible. And lastly, what is a Christian's response to sin? It is to embrace discipline. Embrace discipline. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Embrace discipline. A parent who loves his children disciplines them because he wants what's best for them because he knows not disciplining them will lead to their own destruction. And that's essentially the same thing that is written here. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we say, See, wherefore seeing we are compassed about with, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race which is set before us. So sin easily besets us, but let us lay it aside. Okay, so there we see, continuing with the theme, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds." Now, you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son that he receives. So, it says despise not. That's why I say A Christian has a proper response to sin, embraces the discipline that comes from the sin that they have committed. They accept this as a loving act of God, as it says in verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son that he receiveth. So there's the discipline from God. But there's also church discipline. So have a look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. There's a discipline from God, and then there's the discipline that comes from a brother in Christ. In Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse thirteen, it says Second Thessalonians three verse thirteen says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well doing, continuing with your state. And your position towards sin, be not weary in well-doing. Then it says, And if any man obey not the word of this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so there's a way in which church discipline must be performed by the church if someone is caught in a sin or is living in a sin. And so there's discipline. And a Christian who is truly saved responds in a proper manner towards the discipline, whether it's from God or whether it's from a brother in Christ. The last thing I want to talk to you about is your, uh, the dangers. So let's, if the goodness of God, if the grace of God is not enough motivation for you to stay away from sin or at least to strive to stay away from sin, 
let's look at some of the dangers. The first thing is extreme church discipline. Have a look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 and verse 15. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So what is the purpose of this? You want to, you want to gain your brother. You want to maintain a good relationship with your brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So extreme, like I say, extreme church discipline. You don't want to be treated as a publican or a Gentile we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll read it to you, speaking about the man who slept with his stepmother. It says, To deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In verse 11 of that same chapter it says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or railer, or drunkard, or extortioner, with such an one do not eat. You see how there's a somewhere after there has been godly um, um, discipline, there has been church discipline, and this person hasn't responded to the the correct word of God. There's been no repentance. There has to be a handing over. Paul goes as far as to say, hand this man over to Satan. And so there's extreme discipline. But the great thing is, if you read further on, this man most likely is spoken about in Second Corinthians chapter two. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and in verse um, 6, it says, Sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrariwise you ought to rather to forgive him and to comfort him, lest perhaps such an one be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. So the beautiful picture there to me is, is that someone who is saved, when, re, when disciplined by God, when rebuked by the church, when brothers and sisters show him from Scripture where they're wrong, there is generally a turn towards or repentance towards God again because that person is truly saved. Now, what is another thing that will happen? You will doubt your salvation. I'm not going to have time to go through all the Scriptures, but if you want to, I'll, you can have this page. So the second thing, the second danger to a Christian is you will doubt your salvation. Not just will you doubt your own, but others have reason to doubt yours. Okay? That is something that will happen if you continue in sin. You will lose the joy of your salvation. We read about that. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Restore it to me. That joy. You will lose joy in your salvation. You will lose fellowship with God. We've spoken about that. You will experience no comfort in trials. Because the one who is to comfort you, as John, as it's written in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit, you've quenched. 
you've grieved. There's no comfort in trials. You will have unanswered prayers. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I regard an iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Your testimony will be tarnished. You will not have the boldness to witness. Because boldness comes from the spirit and a clean conscience. And so if you are not in right standing with God, you will, your testimony will be tarnished and you will not have that boldness. You will be ashamed at His coming. In 1 John 2 verse 28 it says, And now little children abide in Him, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, you may have confidence and not be ashamed at Him before His coming. At the judgment seat of Christ, you will have a lot of shame and regret if you don't deal with things here on earth. If you don't judge yourself, lest you will be judged. Deal with sin. Get rid of it. Repent of it. And then lastly, you will suffer bodily and earthly judgment or consequences. Bodily, earthly um, judgment or consequences. That is, practically, if you commit sin, if you're speeding or if you're corrupt in business or whatever, there will be consequences for that. And that is just, I want to say, cause and effect. But then also, you will suffer church discipline and sometimes discipline from God if you continue living in sin. I'd like to conclude. And the first thing I want to say is, this is a very big topic. And perhaps... I didn't address every issue regarding a Christian and sin. But I do invite you to come talk to me about any questions that you have further after church. But let me try and summarize. A Christian can sin just as badly as a non-Christian, but he shouldn't. Because when a Christian sins, there is conviction from God's Spirit. They see these dangers that we just went through and realize, see them realize in their life. And this conviction should lead a Christian to repentance rather than repeating the sins without remorse. If you do not sense God's conviction of sin, do not find yourself making some progress to overcome sin. Do not desire that which is right or do not see yourself as sinful it is possible you may not be a true follower of Christ. A growing Christian will become increasingly aware of how sinful his or her actions are before God and therefore will find assurance in the battle that they wage against sin. Please close your eyes. My question to you today is where do you find yourself? Are you partaking, partaking in, in this Christian war where fleshly and sinful desires oppose your new nature? When convicted by the Spirit, do you repent? Do you want to restore fellowship? Or do you grieve the Spirit? Or do you not even know of this war? Or simply only feel conviction when you're caught out? Perhaps you need to consider that you have not been reborn 
or given a new nature. Please make sure of where you stand with God today. If, you, if you're still dead in your sins, come to Christ, who is the only one who can give you life, eternal life. If you are saved, but lost all joy, assurance, peace with God, repent and turn to Him, and He will restore you. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You that um, Your plan of salvation is so great that our standing can never be changed. Lord, for if it had anything to do with us, we would fail. Lord, we, we struggle to fight sin, but Lord, we want that struggle never to cease. We want to, we want to always fight sin. We want to become more like Christ, and we want to glorify you and, and praise you. We want to be in fellowship with you, Lord. Help us not to neglect the great worship it is to you when we repent and when we confess our, our faults to you and just reiterate our, our dependency on your grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would please come in, in this year, Lord, and in this day and that we would have a, a new attitude towards sin, that our attitude would be one of disgust, hatred for it, for it is the sin that, that nailed you to the cross. and Help us to see your goodness and your grace shown to us every day. May that lead us to repentance as we grow in, in becoming holier and becoming more sanctified and meet for the Master's use. Help us to love one another and to help a brother who is struggling. Help us to lift each other up that we would as a church, grow together. As a church, magnify your name and be filled with your spirit, Lord, and that we would not grieve and, and um, quench the spirit's work in this church or in our lives as individuals, Lord. Help us to start with ourselves and Lord, we ask that you change and just help this church from the inside out to grow and to be a light on a hill for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.